What is up, everybody? This is the TMI Podcast, and today we have Isaac. And Josh. And Madison. We're going to start off with a quote from Paolo Colo. It says, so I love you because the entire universe conspired to help me find you. Ooh. And I have a question for my fiancé. What does love feel like? Okay. I feel like this is definitely a personal question that is individualized. (laughs) And it's different for everybody. For me personally, I feel like love is a feeling of safety. When you are with somebody that you really love, you feel protected, safe. And I feel like that goes for... Normally in relationships, there's like a protector and someone that's being protected, right? Mm. But I think with true love, both people feel that way. You know, like protected from, you know, like environmental things, but also like emotions that may scare them, um, situations that feel like they can't overcome it on their own. With that, I feel like for me, love feels like um, a lot of peace. Anxieties that I may have are less, and life feels like everything is heightened. Mm. Sounds like a drug. A little bit of a drug. A <laughs> little bit. It really is a, cock- a drug cocktail. It is. Okay. So this is a big deal. Love is a big deal. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like the moral of every Disney movie in some way. Not just every Disney movie. Pretty much every movie. Pretty much every movie. To be honest. And yeah, if every it's great not story, the main part of the movie, it's a subplot. It's a subplot movie. at least. It's, it's, it's like such a driving force. For humanity and like the different aspects of love all these different branches motivate so much of our lives mm-hmm. it's basically like it's hard to describe and it's hard to quantify and nail down and define but like let me just describe it you start this human game you wake up you're on a floating rock and you're a sentient being you come to two and three years old you start to be able to use words think in some type of linguistic manner And you're trying to navigate existence. And your body tells you this. Do the things that help you survive. Don't do the things that don't help you survive. You're playing this game. But love is more than just a game. (laughs) (laughs) Am I right? (laughs) Love is not a game. It's like, it's it's, it's weird because love is a little bit ethereal, right? Like, we're playing the life, the human game. And people are like, okay, food. That makes sense. You got to decompose this nutrients and, you know, with these different chemical reactions in your body, use it to build yourself up and keep energy. It follows the law of entropy. We understand some of the mechanisms here. You flee predators, they'll eat you. Slash your jugular and you'll spill out and die, right? Like all these things kind of make sense in our survival scheme. But when we get to things like love, that is, we're, we're so attracted to love. We'll do things like get tortured for it. We'll be starved for it, right? Love is the thing that gets you to overcome these survival emotions. You'll do these crazy things, you know? You'll catch a grenade for it or something. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many song lyrics we could use because it, everybody sings about this. Mm-hmm. Art is created in the name of love. It's true. Divine love, romantic love, uh, a fantastic love, uh, natural love. Family. 
familial love, friendship. I mean, art is created in the name of these things. Art is not always created in the name of fulfilling the nutrient requirements of your liver <laughs> you know? Very true. So if it's this big deal, but like what is its purpose? That's why I want to explore with my fiancé today uh, because we're in love, which we hope to define a little bit of what that means later and maybe how we fell in love. And I think a lot of people have questions about love, and we have questions about love too that we want to explore. And I have a lot I could say, but I'm going to stop talking. I think if you don't have questions to explore, if you stop having questions then there are some questions that you need to really be asking yourself <laughs> about how you receive and give love. Ooh, yeah. I don't want to really get super etymological with the word love here, but I just want to get laid down a foundation before we move okay. on. Love is a verb and a noun. It can be turned into lots of other parts of speech as well, but primarily it's a verb and a noun. You can love someone. You can receive love. Uh, and I guess adjective is, is a good enough thing to say because you can feel loved. I've been described as a... Or you can be a loving person. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of the core things that we'll branch off of. And a lot of people... I think it exists in all of these capacities. It's not really limited to one. You could say love is strictly a verb because it has to be an action that's done. But I don't think that's necessarily the whole truth. I think it can can be experienced in a variety of ways. Okay. Okay. um, As someone who is here on the podcast but not engaged, (laughs) I'm still going to throw out um, some ideas about what I think love feels like. Um, I have some quotes I've saved, and I save them because they're salient, because they resonate with me. Um, So, for example... This is a quote from John Don. Um, I don't actually know what the poem was called because I just have the quote, um, a picture of the quote. But he says, Love was as subtly catched as a disease, but being got, it is a treasure sweet, which to defend is harder than to get, and ought not be profaned on either part. For though tis got by chance... Is kept by art. So this idea about it being got by chance, that's kind of like that, that quote we read at the start about how the, the universe sometimes seems to conspire to make these things happen. But then it's also, it, so it's, it's something providential, serendipitous. It's stumbling upon romance, but then it's also a choice. Mm-hmm. It's also intentional. It's also a lifelong commitment and a battle. Um, just for fun, I'm going to throw in another John Don one here because um, he, he also describes it. So here he says, you know, it's kept by art. It is a, it's, there's a, kind of a, an art or a science to it, to keeping, to staying in love mm. or to continually falling in love. Um, so here's another one from him. He says, thine, arms, thine armies imprison me and mine armies thee. Thy heart, thy ransom is, take mine for me. Other men war that they may other men war that they their rest may gain, but we will rest that we may fight again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so love is this perpetual, lifelong fight. Once the choice has been made, um, it requires it's it's a, it's a it's an entity 
uh, a third entity that doesn't exist independent of either person, but it exists between the two people, and it has to be kept alive, mm-hmm. has to be fed. Um, and a lot of quotes here, but one other quote that I really like that really summarizes for me. So, so that's maybe how love happens, and and maybe it's different for different people. Maybe. Um, I don't know, maybe it's possible for some people they never feel like it's it's a choice or like a, a decision at all, like it just happens to them. Right. It's a, just the, the kind of the traditional idea of falling in love. Um, but then there's a quote of what it's like to be in love. Um, and this is from Virginia Woolf. She says, in case you ever foolishly forget, I am never not thinking of you. So for me, that's what the experience of being in love is, is that person comes to literally embody the idea of happiness and to permeate and um, become a part of everything you do, a part of every thought, a part of every intention, um, a defining purpose and aim and goal of your entire life. Mm. Uh, To quote Maddie Healy, (laughs) it's not living if it's not with you. Which he's referencing cocaine in that particular instance, but it's so but there's true. There's a lot of things that you can say about that. <laughs> well, the drugs to love crossover is significant, as we've already stated. But I suppose you can love cocaine. You, but can, you just you can't. can't. Love you back. Yeah, that that's is very true. very true. That's very true. I think An this, unrequited love. The sensation lives on in cocaine. Well, but, I oh. Sorry. That's all I wanted to say about that. What I was gonna say is, I think those quotes are really interesting, especially the ones. Um, that talk about like the universe being involved or that you happen upon it by chance and then you have to make the conscious decision to put in more effort than you did to uh, obtain that love which I think is the case for a lot of people and that may be why love fizzles out because a lot of times I feel like it's easier to obtain an initial love than to keep it Um, which also goes on to back to the universe. Back to the universe. Back to the universe. (laughs) (laughs) I personally don't believe in soulmates, but I feel like a lot of people do, and I think that sometimes that can hinder people having long-term relationships or even staying with somebody because they feel like the universe wasn't involved. It was too much of a choice. Mm. Absolutely. I think that people have an idea of soulmates, even if they don't call it that. They have an implicit, maybe kind of subconscious idea of the one, you know, Mm -hmm. and how it's going to work out. And and then when things get hard, therefore this is not the one. Therefore I'm going to have a divorce or, Mm -hmm. you know. I do think it's actually a a cause in a lot of broken relationships. Um, I do believe in soulmates, but I believe they're made, not found. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And so not in the traditional sense. Um, But But, that you become two two halves of a whole Mm -hmm. in in that sense of soulmates. I absolutely believe in that. Yeah. Wholemates, if you will. Wholemates. (laughs) Love it. So okay, let's let's take a de- depart from this metaphorical discussion to where did this play out in Madison's relationship? I specifically remember one conversation uh, where we're, it's uh, nighttime. We're sitting looking at the stars on this hill, and uh, 
you could call this one of the decision, the, the great decision period of Madison and I's uh, romance. Like, are we going to get married and be uh, together forever or not? And this is kind of towards the beginning of that time. And we had this discussion, and one of the things we talked about was the universal element in as if we were encompassed by something. Do you remember what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Well, to give a little bit of background, if you did believe in soulmates, this would kind of be a good example. <laughs> Just because our our origin story is kind of crazy in the sense that like we had our parents were friends in college and we knew each other when we were little babies. Right. But then we met again when we were in high school, and then we kept talking. But kind of the story is a little bit crazy because we knew each other before when we were small. So I think sometimes with things like that, people say, oh, well, it was meant to be. It was meant to be, right. Like it validates your relationship, Mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah, exactly. And So I think uh, there's – so what you said about there being universal slash incidental element to love – and also being a, uh, what is that word when you're being like a deliberate, decision. a deliberate element. Yeah. There's an incidental element and a deliberate element. And we feel like the incidental element validates the deliberate element. Mm-hmm. And the same is actually true, I think, with lots of ethereal concepts we don't understand. For example, faith. I could, have, I could just as easily has been, have been born, statistically, in a different religious group, Right. And had I been born into that religious group, the odds are high that I would have been a member of that religious group for my entire life. Therefore, I would have had the incidental element of this faith, right? Incidentally, I was born into a Muslim family, for example, in this portion of the world. Incidentally, I was born into this Protestant family in this portion of the world, right? And But through a deliberate effort, I cultivate this incidental portion of my life and turn it into something favorable, or unfavorable, depending on how I choose to use it. And this is this is not so woo-woo as I'm making it out to sound. It's actually really normal because a hunter-gatherer in 20,000 BC stumbles across a thing of berries. And what does he say? He says, oh my goodness, what a miracle, right? I can't believe I stumbled upon these possibly edible things. But it's not until he goes and eats them, does the deliberate portion of it, that he kind of consummates the berry in a way. Like, it's become a part of him. You know, it went from being an available portion in his life to being a used portion of his life. I think love is no different than that. Uh, I want to talk more about the sensation of love because it's such a big deal. Like, I love... (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) The saying, it's not living if it's not with you, is how I would describe love as in... I feel in a way my life moves forward or it resumes when I'm with the person that I love. And everything else is in some way supplemental to that uh, moving forward of life. Like it doesn't feel like I'm really living if that person isn't with me. Mm-hmm. How do I feel about love? <laughs> and I think um, something interesting is, you know, there's not just the romantic kind of love. But there's, once you have that romantic love, what does it turn into? It turns into familial love, mm-hmm. you know? But And it remains romantic, I think. But it, it does. But it becomes familial yes. in addition. 
but it morphs into something greater. Right. And we all come from some type of family, you know? Right. And whether love played a major part in your family or not, there was some kind of form of love there, you know? Yeah. And so I think based on that quote, you know, even if it's not romantic, you know, it's hard to live without some type of love, you know? It's not living if you don't have something to live for. Yeah. And love is kind of people's reason to live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a very common thread in people taking their own lives. Yeah. They were generally in pursuit of a loveless pursuit, right? My grades weren't... The expectations I ha- that I had for myself or that others had for me were not being met, and therefore I wouldn't get the love that I wanted, right? There's love at the end of everybody's tunnel, you know? There's no way that's not at the end, right? In some way, Attila the Hun saw a love at the end, you know? He saw that the people will love me, right, and admire me, the people I've conquered, or these women will love me, or I will have the respect of these men. I love six. having followers. Yes. I feel like that's a source There's of some love. type of love at the end of everybody's tunnel, I think. And I think when pe- that, that light closes off when you feel like you're never going to reach that. A, a despairing, you know? So this is why it's also a big deal. I mean, uh, the loss of love is maybe one of the most crippling things a human can experience. I mean, people get through very difficult and tragic circumstances with the assistance of love. Like the way we're describing it, if, if it was a pill, it would just be so much easier to understand this, you know? The fact that we're saying, so here's love, human player. It's the thing that will, you break your leg in the middle of the woods, 50 miles away from any other humans, and guess what? You'll find a way to get back because you love someone. If you didn't love anyone, you'd sit there and let the vultures pick you apart, you mm-hmm. know? Or you're in love and you are going to go to war, you know? And all, all these crazy stories, you know, people like... And also, when you paint roses in during a sunset with your special person sitting across from them with two easels, you know, you're going to feel something you've never felt before and you are going to hold that person close to you for the rest of your life and you would do anything for them, you know? That is like... This is something crazy we're we're describing here. It basically turns you into a superhuman, and it makes your life. It, it is the thing that makes your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a biological thing to add, but I will let Josh share something first. <laughs> I don't know if I have a lot to share right now. Um, just a thought is that. So you know we're told that we're created in the image of God, and there are different ways to understand that. You can think. Oh, I know where you're going with this. That we're created in the image of His body. That's one interpretation. That we look like Him. Another is that we think like Him because God is the Word, Logos, and we are rational, and that's how we're created in the image of God. But a third option, God is love. We're created in the image of God because we're created to love. That is our purpose. That is the, the telos of our creation. And, and that's true of, of every single person on the planet, um, regardless of different... Um, love is usually only thought about in, in romantic terms and, and sexual terms. And regardless of different um, 
sexual orientations and things, those people are also still created to love. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that we have in common. Um, so I would just throw that out there. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, and I think, um, like, I've heard a lot from people the best way to love somebody is to look at the example of God or Christ, you know? Like, if, if God is love, then what does, who is God, and how do I embody those char- characteristics, mm-hmm. you know? How do I forgive how do I sacrifice everything I have mm-hmm. for somebody? Right. You know? Um, yeah, like we said, it's the superhuman pill. Yeah. Like, to become a divine being, you can't stay as you are. And how are you going to get to the next <clears throat> level? Some form of love is what's going to get you to the next level, it seems like. It will bestow you with the power to move forward when, despo- when in la- in, uh, without love you would not be capable of mm-hmm. doing so. So therefore, it's it bestows purpose. It is the purpose in itself. It's just this crazy thing that's happening. So I want to offer a interesting biological perspective about love and why in the world, if we're looking at this, I'm a clump of cells that's expressing this opinion right now, and I'm almost expressing it in unison with a lot of other people. They understand this love. You know, it's cross cultural. It mean it is expressed in unique ways with different individuals, but there's something about it that every human experiences. And why might we do this? Uh, Andrew Huberman, on his podcast, explains the binding of autonomic nervous systems, which I think is a fascinating theory. So basically, your autonomic nervous system is the thing that dilates and contracts your pupils. It uh, gets your heartbeat to rise or fall. It has to do with the fight or flight system in your body. it also has to do with things like digestion, rest, sleep, and these other things that basically what happens autonomically or by itself without your conscious involvement. And it's a part of your nervous system, which includes your brain and spinal cord so and your associated nerves. So uh, I just learned about this in my neuroscience class. <laughs> I'm slightly more qualified to talk about it. Um, but basically, these unconscious behaviors... Uh, synchronize with other people sometimes. So let me give you, I love giving evolutionary examples. Uh, You are a monkey who doesn't have as much hair as other monkeys and you stand on your legs sometimes and there's 50 of you and you walk around and you kind of work together as a unit and you see a saber-toothed tiger having a great little nap and somebody steps on a twig and it perks its ears and looks up at all of you and you're 50, right? So there you are, you've got a pile of rocks in front of you, okay? And you're all, everybody's heartbeats, their pupils get bigger to let in more light. You stop, uh, you start breathing quick, more quickly. And all these things happen, right? Instantly. Your ears perked up, you're focused on your senses. Uh, and you're looking at the saber tiger and it looks up at you. And so what just happened is all of your nervous systems just did the same thing in response to the stimuli, right? saber tiger, awake, everybody freak out. <sighs> okay. Now, here's what could happen. You pick up a rock and you throw it at the saber-toothed tiger and all of your 49 monkey friends run away. What will happen? The saber-toothed tiger will get up and rip you into pieces, right? That, that's not good. What would be better is if all 50 of you had the same autonomic response, right? You see the, th- the threat and you have to respond immediately and you all pick up a rock. And guess what? 50 rocks will kill the saber-toothed tiger, right? So the difference between living and dying, when we, we're, we're really peculiar animals. 
because we're incredibly intelligent. But a lot of us don't have the survival skills in a modern world to get thrown out into the middle of a new, a new environment and live for an extended period of time. Most of us wouldn't make it. But if you just add one more person, your odds go up tremendously. And we, we're a eusocial organism. Only ants and termites are eusocial. Eusocial is the highest degree of a social order. There are other orders that build things like... Not even bees? Uh, bees are sub, considered by eusocial by some and not considered by others. The sizes are kind of different, really different. Bees have a lot, but ants and termites outnumber them significantly. Uh-huh. And then New York even outnumbers those organizations. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, basically, we, it turns out in a eusocial organism being synchronized in your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, your autonomic nervous system, will promote your longevity. Now, here's a few other reasons besides just the unique eusocial part of being a human that this might be relevant. And you can obviously draw a bunch of more conclusions with what I just saw. War, agriculture, uh, architecture, society, all these other things can only be done if your if your autonomic nervous system responds similarly to the other humans in your tribe, but other things, sexual reproduction, uh, another thing that your body control that is controlled by your autonomic nervous system is your sexual organs. So none of that happens as it's not completely conscious what's happening there. In fact, very little of it is conscious. And so, in order to procreate for any sexually reproducing organism. They have to have a binding, a complete uniting of autonomic nervous systems in order to create a baby. So the very birth of a baby, all these sequenced events that happen in order to have uh, a zygote formed has to do with this portion of your nervous system acting in synchrony with the other sexually reproducing So it requires not just a, uh, a very literal lock and key synchronization, but also a physiological synchronization. Exactly. And it has to do with this <clears throat> binding effect. And it's just amazing because think of all the possibilities. Your nervous system bound to someone else, if your nervous system is bound to someone else, you can secrete the same hormones, the same neurotransmitters, and the same brain regions <clears throat> all at the same time and experience what the other one is experiencing. And nothing will be better than your survival than interpreting an event happening in the environment at the same wavelength as another person. Because then you can deal with the problem in the same way. There's also the theory about your immune system. You know, like oh, if you're giving systems. off pheromones, right. that will be complementary to the other person's mm-hmm. immune system. You'll be more attracted to that person because they can help you combat more diseases. Right, so your children would potentially have the most developed immune systems. Uh, the law of it, signs of attraction is fascinating as well. So but love is like quantum pairing. <laughs> <laughs> you spin the same way. Yes. Pretty much. It is. And I think some people are just naturally more likely to spin the same way or have their uh, autonomic nervous systems synchronize. And that's one reason why we just fall in love with some people. I'm talking about romantic, but not just romantic. For example, uh, babies breastfeeding. Uh, their nervous system synchronized with the mother in that sense. Mm-hmm. And then both the mother and the baby release oxytocin, for example, from the pituitary gland at the same time. And these other things are happening in synchrony, which has this crazy, powerful mother-to-child connection, mm-hmm. the building of the familial love. And this is happening between husband and wife, uh, children and parents, friends. For example, trauma bonding. What's happening with trauma bonding? 
well, you and your war party are traveling, and then someone lights this torch, and then you're discovered by the enemies, right? And now you all, just like this monkey scenario that I uh, described, have this very powerful, oh my gosh, I really, it's a stimulus that could potentially end my life. I got to think of something fast, but it's not just you. Everyone is experiencing that at the same time. And the fact that this stimuli uh, caused this, elicited this response in your autonomic nervous system at the same time, you're going to leave. And five years after, you could see those people, you might break into tears just thinking, I have this powerful kinship and brotherhood with this man that was in my war party at this time because of this reaction that's just cemented into our nerves. Because there's something called long-term potentiation, which just says you have synapses, which are the gaps in between your neurons. And we have a lot of them, and we strengthen them sometimes. And we can strengthen them in long-term fashions, things that last longer than days and weeks and months. So you can strengthen those synapses. And there are lots of things that can strengthen those synapses, but one factor is the intensity of the event. And so trauma bonding happens when this part of your nervous system you don't control decides to strengthen these synapses so that a signal passing through your nervous system will always go through this route, and boom, you're bonded to these people. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And it, it, makes, it, it makes so much sense why this would encourage the feeling of love. Hardly anything can help you survive as a human better than being in love, mm-hmm. you know, for various reasons. Families being in love helps you promote your specific genes, right? Me, my spouse, my children, we're going to survive. And the only way that I'm going to still protect my kids from the bear, even though I've been clawed up a few times, is if I'm completely devoted to these people. And it, it's good for my genes. Same reason why the bees will sting you even though it pulls out some of their internal organs, right? Or why some ants will run out and try to beat the spider that you know, stomps them into the ground, sacrifice their life. Altruism is a result of this. We have this unique capacity to be altruistic with love. So that's a little biological. Maybe it's not as touchy-feely as what we're talking well, about. Well, I think there. there's... <laughs> when we had... When we created more of a complex society, we kind of forgot about a lot of the biological aspects of love. You know, like, it's not just emotional. There's a lot of emotional things that are happening because of biological processes that we kind of discount because we feel it emotionally, but we don't consider that, you know, your brain's connected to the rest of your body. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, this is, I mean, this is a great debate topic, but, like, is there anything more going on, right? Something with the soul. Do you love someone more than evolution requires you to, ever? I mean, that's kind of impossible to verify. Well, theoretically, evolution would require you to love all people in that same hormonal class equally, mm-hmm. and you don't. Right. You find one and you, and you love that person, if not exclusively, at least superlatively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> And this, the, I, I, I had this thought when Madison was saying something about um, Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ's love and how we follow their pattern and their example. Um, because their capa- Heavenly Father, our, our, our spiritual Father's capability of loving us perfectly 
has to do with the fact that he knows us perfectly. Mm. You cannot love a person or a thing that you do not understand or comprehend. Um, and, but at the same, so I've, Victor Frankl is a really interesting author um, and really amazing author, I should say. Um, his book, Man's Search for Meaning, is phenomenal. From another book called Yes to Life in Spite of Everything, um, he said, For it is the nature of love that makes us see our loved one in their uniqueness and individuality. In other words, love causes us to see someone for who they are. And therefore, the only person whom you will ever truly know fully is a person whom you love fully. Um, theoretically, a spouse, and then maybe you could apply that to God as well. Whether that can extend into the larger community or not, I'm not sure. Um, and I think for humans, it's kind of an iterative, cyclical process that, that builds upon itself, where... You love someone, and that allows you to see them more accurately for who right. they actually are. And by seeing them for who they actually are, you see more to love about them. Um, because I think when, when you don't love someone, hatred is a caricature of a person. It's, it's an inaccurate depiction of a person, and you don't actually hate them at all because you don't see them for who they are. Right. Mm -hmm. You're not actually hating the you person. You hate your, your, your projection perception. of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really feel like if we could all, I feel like it's impossible to really hate somebody if you know them well. Mm -hmm. You know, like you said, you're hating a version of them that you don't fully understand. Yeah. And, and one, to bring in the biological thing here, you might say, like, what about like a sociopath mm -hmm. or a psychopath or whatever, um, serial killer, something like that. Um, Maybe kind of an implicit argument here that, that there is nobody that you wouldn't love if you understood them fully. Maybe understanding them fully would have to be extended to understanding their biophysiological mm -hmm. state of being. Right. You know, like you might say, this person annoys me, but then you find out that they've got like a mental disorder thing going on or something. Mm -hmm. And at the very least, it gives you sympathy and understanding. But I think kind of the implicit idea here is that there is some kind of spiritual matter thing that is improving upon biology in every instance, and that that is the thing that is capable of receiving love, that right. that is the thing in every person to be loved. That um, It's a complicated idea because it does kind of make it seem like everything is determined biologically. Like right. sociopaths, they aren't bad. They just got, you know, a bad right. biological, you know, combination yeah. of, of, of factors. And... I don't think it's quite that simple. I don't think so either. But I do mm -hmm. think that there is there is an innate spiritual something that that improves upon biology that goes beyond what what biology would lead yeah. you to expect. I, I think uh, I want to take a theological step and then back into what Madison was saying. But theologically, we are spirits, right? We're composed of the same thing God is composed of. It seems like, but He was greater than us. Uh, and more magnificent and organizes us and gives us principles by which we can become like he is. And what he's, he's describing something, and Joseph Smith talks about in the Doctrine and Covenants, that there's a spiritual matter, we can't perceive it, it's more fine. But he's, he's giving it this metaphysical ass, uh, assignment that, okay, something's going on here, it's some type of matter, but it's not interacting with the regular matter. And what I all, have always imagined that is there's something what spirit is, is the agential component of matter. And so we look at rocks and we think, that guy can't choose 
what to do, right? <laughs> and that's not just because it doesn't have legs, right? There's something else about this rock that means it doesn't seem to be choosing. And when we see things that choose, like animals and some plants and stuff, we're fascinated because we're under the assumption this thing has a little bit of choice. And we make hierarchies of choice, right? We think phytoplankton have a little bit less of a choice than gorillas do, for example. And it just makes sense to us because of how they seem to be exhibiting themselves, right? Like this thing seems to, and I think uh, what makes it fascinating is we do things contrary to biology frequently. And that seems to be something you could only do in an agential world wherein biological determinism was not true. Mm -hmm. So it seems to prove the spiritual hypothesis or there's a piece of matter in you that acts against biological determinism is when we make choices against our biology. And like I talked, I talked in a way that kind of romanticized uh, biological love, which made it sound like we should all, if we really listen to our biology, we would love everyone. But that's absolutely not true. A group of slightly hairless apes, 50,000, 100,000, 200,000 years ago, meeting each other would not have an initial feeling of let's all bond together and make a great bigger community. In fact, we are also ingrained with some negative feelings that exist in our biology to be afraid of those people and that maybe it's beneficial if we take our rocks and throw them at the other monkeys, right? Sure. And so I didn't want to make it sound as romantic as I did probably because uh, it's not that way. Our biology also teaches us to hate and to be... Uh, not so cooperative sometimes. Sometimes eliminating the threat is better than trying to become friends with it uh, from a survival standpoint. At least that's what our perception would tell us. So if there's any way we triumph our biological determinism, then it seems to me like, ooh, there might be a little bit of agential Yeah, any other, any other explanation <clears throat> for why we sometimes act against our biological impulses or at least have the idea that we should any other explanation does seem kind of schizophrenic, that biology is right. telling you to disobey biology yeah. if, mm -hmm. if you're a strict well, biological determinist. Yes, and we, like dissonance, cognitive dissonance, right? I think this thing is true and I think this other thing is true, is a thing we experience as conscious beings, but I don't see it happening in any deterministic fashion, right? So if, if the universe is purely determinist, right, there's this set of atoms, and if I knew where all of them were right now, and I knew where all the electrons were on their spin right now, I'll tell you exactly where they'd all be in a thousand years, because I could play it out on my... But it's not that way. But it's not that way. For uh, physical properties, like we've... Like Heisenberg. Yeah. But also, I am under the impression that when we watch agential beings act, we're shocked by them sometimes. Like, for example, what is, what's God's experience during the creation? He smiles, you know? He's, he thinks it's interesting. Like, God smiled down on his creation. Was he surprised? I th maybe he was, you know? Maybe God was surprised. Well, how could he be surprised if he was not somehow influencing an agential component, right? Well, there's a, there's a really interesting language in Abraham in the Pearl of Great Price, um, which I won't go into it here, because, but it actually has really interesting implications for the idea of evolution. But it simply says, verse 18 of Abraham chapter 4. So instead of just like God created the thing, so you've got in, in Latter-day Saint scripture, you have Genesis, you have Moses, you have Abraham, and you have the temple, which I believe actually aligns with Moses. Um, 
slightly different creation accounts, but in, in Moses and in Genesis, you kind of have this, like, God created A, and he saw that it was good. Mm-hmm. God created B, and he saw that it was good. Um, in Abraham, here, 4.18, it says, And the gods watched, the, watched those things which they had created, which they had ordered, until they obeyed. So they're like watching them, waiting for them to obey, which also really implies that there was some kind of independent mm-hmm. autonomy mm-hmm. in this, whatever it was that they were acting upon. Um, I want to go, I like the idea, let's talk about like the, the really ultimate theological um, question and consequences of love here. So in Latter-day Saint theology, what does it mean that God is love? Um, and, and why, are, why is love the purpose of our lives? And, and why does love involve another person? Well, in Latter-day Saint theology, God is love and God is also married. Mm-hmm. God is two. Elohim is God. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you see that in Genesis, right? The word, the Hebrew word, the im, at the end of a Hebrew word is always plural. Elohim, Eloi, or I don't know exactly how to say it, Eloi, something like that. That would be the singular form of that word. But Elohim is God's, and you see that in, you know, God created man in his own image, male and female created he them. His own image, male and female created he them. I don't think he's trying to tell us that God is a hermaphrodite. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I think what we're hearing is that God is also, that there is also a mother, Mm -hmm. God, which is a strong component of Latter-day Saint theology, is a heavenly mother. So, and, and this is actually... A really important idea because we're told that we're supposed to become like God um, and we're told that what we're looking for is eternal life and eternal is one of the names of God so eternal life is not an adjective of, of time duration it's actually a, a quality it's like saying Jehovah life or Elohim life and so eternal life is or at least this has been a very strong interpretation of it within the church is to live eternally in the family unit, um, to be married, to have the ability of procreating spirit offspring as God did, to become creators like him in that sense. And then you can, you can also take it further and, and, and believe that we're supposed to become like God in the sense of having all power, all wisdom, you know, power over matter to create in that sense as well. Um, I certainly think that's an option within the scriptures, but not necessarily the only interpretation. I think it could just be that we become like God in the sense that we become um, spiritual parents. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I don't know. So what what are the implications of that, I guess, for us? God is married. God is love. Um, We're supposed to become like God. Love is at the foundation. It's at the foundation of so much of what we do, so much of our life here on earth. For someone like Freud, it's at the foundation of literally everything that you do. Right. That everything at at its base is some form of libido. Right. Mm-hmm. And that all, you know, neuroses are just suppressed libido, mm-hmm. and creative genius is just redirected libido. Right. And perversions are just unsuppressed libido. Right. And and everything else. Um, so I I think he's onto something. <laughs> yeah, let me throw in one, one other thing here that adds to that, because I, I think he's onto something, too. I think he's very intelligent. Um, so, in the, in the Book of Mormon, Alma 38, 12. Use boldness, but not overbearance, and also see that ye bridle all your passions, that ye may be filled with love. 
Bridle all your passions, and the immediate consequence is that ye may be filled with love. Kind of, it's like it's as if love is our active energy that we can direct to to any array, any from among an array of aims or activities, um, and we have to rein it in on how we use it for something so that we can direct it to its proper aims. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's kind of like you have a. Um, it, it's almost as if it were finite and you have to choose how to allocate it, but of right. course it can grow. Right. It kind of implies that, like, is love not a passion itself? You know, like, when it becomes passionate, is that when it becomes out of control? Like, when it becomes out of control, is that when it can be weaponized? Well, maybe so, love is just the energy behind the passion. Mm-hmm. It is what enables us to be passionate beings because... Mm-hmm. Um, Love is clearly not defined by its object or in, in, in being an appropriate object because we're commanded things like love not the world. So mm-hmm. clearly it's capable to bestow love upon an inappropriate object. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a scalar, one could say. So like there's vectors and scalars, right? Speed is a scalar. So speed does not imply a direction. It simply tells you the distance traveled. But velocity includes direction as well, directionality included in the distance. So love takes a direction and amplifies it. Yes. Is, is, is uh, an option here. I'm saying that love, um, the love is, well, love has a beautiful positive connotation in most people's eyes, in how we speak about it generally. Uh, but let's say love is this ethereal sensation that makes you superhuman, kind of, like this special pill. And you can use it for good or evil. Like, I think the same is true with obedience, right? Obedience is much more of a scalar. There's a lot more nuance here. Mm-hmm. You can be obedient to evil things. Mm-hmm. You can choose not to question it, and without doubt, choosing to follow it through any difficulty. Well, that, that's exactly how you choose to follow Hitler. That's exactly, I mean, it's the same principle. It's being used as a scalar. Righteous obedience, righteous love, imply a vector. Or they're saying the direction that this love is being used in is constructive. Mm-hmm. It's leading to creation, happiness, human flourishing, and so on and so forth. Or in a sense, it's aligning with principles of righteousness, which are pursuit of eternal life and uh, immortality. So uh, this is a really good question to ask. Like, what are the implications for this? So I think what I was going to say is, uh, I wish I could find the art, the reference. I was looking for it for a while. But in an explanation of chastity, really interestingly, a general authority a long time ago, I think it was in the 70s, says, were it not that man had this desire, he wouldn't have been interested in starting a family. So it's like without uh, libido in any sense, man wouldn't really be that interested in doing this whole propagated generation thing. And create new humans. So, and certainly not of staying around to raise the family. Exactly, that's like a huge, like what what's going to motivate the man to do that? Mm-hmm. Which is is the libido, which is totally different from what I've generally heard. I'd always heard like you reject the libido, or your sexual pursuit, so that you can be a loving and caring and gentle husband. Turns out, you embrace the libido in order for it to transform you into a loving the day. Embrace the <laughs> but So what do you feel like, how does that, 
what sorry <laughs> what part of the definition <laughs> I guess me. Are you a little nervous? It's okay. You can ask me anything. <laughs> what part of the definition of love does that have? <laughs> Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Are you trying to tell me up. define what, what's like, righteous what and what's wicked? What is love in addition to libido? I'm saying, like, what part of love is libido? Do you think that oh, is love? No. Or do you think that's an expression of love? Or how do you feel like that yeah, fits so like in what's based the on what you just said? Those things? Like, what's the relationship of sexual attraction and love? Like, love is uh, definitely the base. And libido is a portion of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, libido isn't necessarily a portion of your love for your fellow man. Exactly. Right. Right. But, go, like, if you listen to Freud, he like, thinks he is. thinks that you have a libido towards mm-hmm. your parents or towards, or, like, their, you know, it all branches off of that. Yeah. Well, well, it's so powerful. That anyone you're nice to, you have some sort of yeah. sexual yeah. attraction to. Right. You're a simp. Yeah. <laughs> as we would say now. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure I, I see what you're saying. Exact uh, I, I think the there's. Let me read this quote. This is a great time. Okay. Um, Tim Keller says in the meaning of marriage, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out, out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw out at us. So uh, that kind of seems to suggest libido is a – sex is a beautiful representation of what's going on with that statement, which is the complete revealing of yourself to another person and the complete expression of devotion, of vulnerability, Right? That, that's why it's, it's like this big deal because it makes you really vulnerable, right? You're saying, this is me unapologetically. It's who I am. And I mean, a, n- nakedness, for example, is used in the scriptures often to represent just kind of a, an intimacy or a vulnerable state, right? Adam and Eve are naked and they get really embarrassed and they decide to cover themselves because they can't believe that God would see them naked, even though they've been naked for so long. Mm-hmm. And they just learn this and think, like, oh, I'm so embarrassed now. Because they're like, I don't want to be that intimate with God. I don't want him to, like, know me, right? And uh, the thing is, sex basically plays out what lo- what's happening with love in a way that's very real, understandable, and poignant. And so I think we, uh, we just use – sex is such a good example of what's happening with love, the – here is me, 100% me, and the other person is saying, I love the 100% you. I love you so much, as you are, that uh, it kind of, it kind of uh, encompasses what we're talking about when we say love. So what is, though, the difference between that kind of love and the kind of love that can be extended to the rest of humanity that's not exclusive to a marital partner? I think it just is... Knowing somebody fully, just not in that, like, sexual context. But is it possible to love someone that you don't know at all? I mean, I, I guess I kind of said no to that earlier, but, in, like, can you well, have, I guess, a kind of abstract benevolence? I think love? that would involve kind of like a spiritual 
aspect. I think children do that. I suppose that's mm-hmm. true. You actually can say that you do know a little bit of something about every person on earth, such that they're a spiritual child of God. Right. And that's enough for that seed of love to exist. But I, I do think that's true. But here's the thing. I like. I think that, that schema of as long as I use this intellectual statement to declare everyone around me as this type of person, they at least share this common definition with me, then I can do this really difficult thing by being altruistic and kind and whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's fine. But I think a two-year-old who can't comprehend human language loves better than anyone else does. And they don't declare anyone a child of God in any intellectual sense. They just love in this very primitive way that I think is much more pure. Like, I think it's actually kind of, it's a reductionist, adultish way of saying, like, let's love everybody, but, like, we can't just actually love everybody. We have to make sure we have, like, this common identity thread and that allows us to get So how do you feel like a two-year-old's expression of love is the same as love to us as, like... It's not the same. Yeah. Uh, It's definitely the love, uh, when an adult loves a stranger so purely it means more than when a two-year-old loves a stranger so purely Mm -hmm. because the adult has a nuanced understanding of the universe and that's true character development is to say i was a two-year-old once i loved everybody really nicely and now i know that the world sucks that people are unfair and this world is filled with uncertainty and i could die tomorrow and i'm fully aware of that yet i choose to love regardless so that's why why does the savior who's going to show us all this love it Uh, Why is he exposed to uncertainty, tragedy, suffering, pain, affliction, so on and so forth? Because without the nuanced understanding of the world, it's like saying bunnies aren't evil for eating human flesh. They weren't interested in eating human flesh anyways. They're not benevolent, you know? Bunnies are not benevolent because they were planning on eating carrots anyways. But lions are benevolent for not eating you because they could eat you if they wanted to. And if it chooses not to, you get the sensation that that's a good lion. It didn't want to eat me, even though it could. So, I mean, the, the two-year-old's kind of like a bunny. Like, it loves everyone, and it's beautiful to observe, but it's not admirable in the same way that an adult is with their understanding of the world. Yet, I do still think the two-year-old is what we're... It's the prototype for our emulation. But it's not our end goal. But I want to say one more thing. Uh, Elohim, a heavenly father and a heavenly mother, united as one decide to create the human family. And much more than that. I mean, they're involved in the spiritual creation of all these other agential things I think are so beautiful. Also, I'm on this rant because we just hung out with a two-year-old. Mine. True. <laughs> that is, I was just at my family's house. pretty loving He's a very loving, very loving person. Mm. He gave us great hugs. Uh, but Heavenly Father, Heavenly Mother, a male and a female counterpart working together to create a whole are the thing that brings in this familial you know new generation of life here right and where do they get their joy we assume that they get their joy by having us experience joy right it's a cathartic experience of love it's not a dependent sort of thing it's not that they need us right they don't need us whatsoever they're simply overabundant right they have too much love and they create because of it. Right. They always have an excess and they're always creating. To capture the overflow from mm-hmm. their cup. Yes. And uh, <clears throat> I just think... And that is actually the ideal of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the exact opposite of codependence. 
Um, Shout out to Ty Mansfield. Yep, there, there's a, a quote here um, from a presentation by Ty Mansfield. It says, True love in a relationship is realized only when two people, each connected with his or her deepest self, unite. Now we have a synergistic, not a draining relationship. We love one another not because we need love, not because the other needs love, but because love overflows our cup and we must share. Then, rather than fall in love, we rise in love. And I think... You know, there's nothing in the gospel that's stagnant. Mm-hmm. Nothing at all. It's Everything is always either growing or diminishing. Dynamic. That's mm-hmm. true of, of every everything that has any moral worth. Faith, hope, righteousness, all of those things. Love is another one of those things. And I think chastity and everything else the gospel teaches us about attaching love to its proper object is actually telling us how to grow love. Mm-hmm. Because when love is attached to an inappropriate object, it it diminishes, it quenches itself, and eventually it disappears entirely, if that's its only object. Right. Mm. And the love of power, pride, those are the sorts of things that kill love, and that's why Satan has no love in him whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Whereas when attached to its proper object, it actually multiplies itself. Um, and it, it, it reinforces itself, it fuels itself, it's not exhausting Um, And eventually you get to this state that Joseph Smith describes this way. He says, A man filled with the love of God is not content with blessing his family alone. So we've transcended exclusive familial love here, but ranges through the whole world anxious to bless the whole human race. It's it's being this... Nietzsche has this analogy of... uh, He calls it the overabundant sun. That's just, you know, rises every day sheds its light on the world, not because it needs the world, although the world certainly needs it, but just because it has too much light to give. Right. Um, and that's the kind of person Joseph Smith was. You know, he was never weary and well-doing, mm-hmm. never never burned out of love, you right. know, loving people. So then I think the uh, this has a lot of implications for our previous discussion, like what more than libido is love? And how are we experiencing altruism? Well, I think uh, there's this beautiful cascade effect of, oh my gosh, this spouse I love so much that this this sexual intimacy we experience, let's, what does it inevitably bring? A child. Like, that's the reason you have it. It's like, you loved each other that much? Well, it's going to overflow into this new being. Mm -hmm. And you can give that new being some of this overflowing love. Mm -hmm. And then... You love this new overflowing being more than you ever thought you could love a person, right? You say, man, there's other kids. Everybody's somebody's kid. I can't believe this. Every woman is somebody's spouse, somebody's daughter. And we see this life in this kind of relational fashion. Every grandma is someone's grandma. And you just have this, this um, you know, kind of love, uh, what do you call that one? Epiphany. Mm-hmm. You have this love epiphany and you're wow, I'm under the impression now that everyone deserves this overflowing love that I'm experiencing. And I think that's where it spills over into the world. Is you, you, it, might, it could start with this. Uh, I think it should start a lot earlier in life, this overflowing experience of love. You see kids, you know, they kind of freak out when they're like so excited. Or you see a kid's parents show up to their dance recital and they just can't believe it. They're just so excited that they're there. And they do this. They're a great example of spilling this love over. And I think we call to kids so much in the scriptures because they are truly unconditional with this type of 
sharing. And it's a lot easier to be unconditional with your love when you have an abundance of it to share. Mm-hmm. If you feel like you're limited in your expression of love, your capacity to share, then who do you, you, you will start assigning who's worthy for this little bit of love that I have to give. Mm-hmm. And that's very destructive. Well, I think going back to like our original question about what does love feel like, I think love enables you to have enough love in your cup to overflow to other people, to like other parts of your life, to passions you may have. And for a child, you know, a parent-child relationship for, if you have a small child and you're a parent, your love is basically just giving. The child really doesn't give you anything back. Like maybe they give you joy, like you have some special moments with them, you feel happy. But like the child can't provide anything for the parent. So that child is able to give so much love because their cup is just being added to. You know, they just have an abundance of love to give to everybody else. So when you have, when you feel love so strongly, I think it enables you to carry that over into other beings, into other aspects of your life. This is really beautiful because, so a child, you're saying a child is so capable of loving because they are the true beggar, essentially. Mm -hmm. Like, I truly cannot provide for any of my needs. Therefore, when I snuggle with my mom, you know, when we go to take a nap, I'm like giving this, um, I'm just this completely needy being and I'm giving. And I see a lot of prophetic advice like I'm thinking about King Benjamin's speech. He says, are we not all beggars? And he's saying, if you want this kind of love, and he also asks, commands you to be a child later uh, in his uh, address. He says, look, you're all beggars, and guess what? You should become like a child. And children are these beggars who need everything. And you could be so prosperous, but if you decide to identify yourself as the person who's constantly needing from the Lord, Every day I wake up and I need all these things from God. I need money to live. I need this person in my life. I need this and whatever. And you say, that's all from God giving to me in his abundance. Then imagine how much easier it is to share that. Mm -hmm. You know, you're now the ultimate beggar who's received every one of his needs and wants. Mm -hmm. And how are you feeling then? Like you're capable of sharing so much goodness to the world. Well, we call ourselves children of God. Like, we're not saying, like, we are people of God, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, we are his children. We need everything from him. Like, we are beggars. Well, and that's exactly the pattern, too, is this. We are the children who are receiving everything, incapable of giving him anything in return, other than becoming ourselves as as highly capable of love as possible. Mm -hmm. That's how we repay him. Right. but it's a love that cannot really reciprocate. And so just if the parent loves because, or in that, they give, the child loves in that they receive. You know, we have this in probably the most, uh, the chapter of Scripture that talks the most about love is First John 4. He says, um, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world. We love him because he first loved us. Mm -hmm. We love, we give, because we once received. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's It's an eternal pattern of love. And the purpose, it's almost like a dualistic idea. Like, what is good, what is godly, is that which propagates itself. 
in family as as in principle. Um, the love increases itself and it creates things that then are in turn capable of loving. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other force, the satanic force, is is really a force of nothingness, of nothing at all, of void, of darkness, of the mm-hmm. absence of love, the absence of light. It's kind of like entropy, just the breakdown of all things. Right. Whereas the other force is the creative force, the um, the pregnant universe, mm-hmm. the um, the increase and, and the propagation of all things. Yeah. It's deep. Let's do a quick depart to marriage. <laughs> Because I think it's interesting. And I see Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother as two married beings. And I am so... There's so many cultural things about marriage that I really don't like. So I think there's something much deeper about the idea of eternal monogamy. Oh, one more thing I wanted to say. This thought I wanted to express really quickly. Um, I almost want to take back what I said about spirit being agential and say spirit is love. You know, like spirit is the thing that is cap- that has the capacity to love. Sure. Because I also look at a rock and say, it, I don't think it can love. But I think because love extends, it, because love extends beyond choice, as we've expressed. I mean, I can love a guitar, for example, or love music or strange items. You know, we haven't really talked about that, about non-human relational love. But I love things that are non-agential and non-real, like mountains, for example. I could absolutely love that. So if I feel like that is dipping even deeper than agential capacity. Like us as spirits is the thing that can love and receive love. Uh, But what's the big deal with... So we've talked about all this love and it seems so wonderful like the world should just come together and hold hands and sing a good song. (laughs) Uh, But I think love gets controversial when we decide to enforce expressions of love. Right? These kinds of expressions of love are okay and these aren't. And I just want to talk about marriage and I don't want to talk about any of the other things because we don't have that much more time. (laughs) So, Madison, how do you know that you should say yes when I asked you to marry me. For you specifically or just marriage in general? Uh, let's talk about it in general. <laughs> okay. Well, but You can I mean, inject some personal things if that illustrates the point. Okay. Um, I mean, I... There's never been really a time that I didn't want to get married, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, especially as a woman. Like, <laughs> you think about that pretty much your whole life. But then you question, like, why? You know, why don't I just commit myself to this person and then I can spend my whole life with them? And then, you know, maybe it depends on how you look at marriage. Do you look at it as a lawful binding? You know, some people say that. They're like, maybe I shouldn't get married. I can just stay with that person for years. And we both know that we're committed to them. And isn't that more beautiful because... We just, yes, exactly. But I think um, deciding to get married, for some people it isn't this way, but for me it was. I feel like 
if I'm following the example of God, God is a married being. He's commanded us to be married. And that's the example of what I want to be. You know, I feel like I can fully give love if I am... If I make a promise to somebody, you know, like what's more beautiful than I'll give you everything. Like I'll give you my money. I'll give you my time. I'll give you my whole life Mm -hmm. and I'll do that forever, you know. And if you look at it as, um, you know, separate from divorce, there's no way out, you know, if that's not something you consider. Like interestingly... Are you about to talk about C.S. Lewis at all? No. Oh, okay. C.S. Lewis talks about marriage, and he says, if promise added nothing to the, if promise added nothing to love, we wouldn't include any promises. But almost all expressions of love are promises. Mm-hmm. We read Romeo and Juliet, and it's just a series of when this happens, I'll do this, or I love you so much, you remind me of this, and I'll do this for you. Like, love and promise are almost synonymous ideas. Because it's an assurance of a future And what allegiance. is exactly future? A promise is a guarantee of permanence. It's an indication of loyalty. Mm-hmm. Um, Elder Holland, in, in a couple different talks, he says, the crowning characteristic of love is always loyalty. And true love always includes the idea of permanence. And so why, mm-hmm. why marriage, why bind yourself? Is it not more beautiful for this continued uh, willing cohabitation kind of thing why why put any restraints on yourself it's kind of like the same question of why we have laws mm-hmm. like is it not better if we as a society just do all the right mm-hmm. things voluntarily without any threat of punishment right are we not somewhat you know does don't don't laws just kind of make us more self-interested and we do things for the wrong reasons because right. we're trying to avoid pre- punishment as opposed to because they're right but to adapt something from james madison in the Federalist Papers when he's explaining why laws, why government. I'm going to make an adaptation for why marriage. <laughs> says, so this will be adapted from Federalist Wow. <laughs> says, it may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to maintain a marriage. You know, like a, a contract. A contract should be necessary. But what is marriage itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? Mm. The fact that we do commit, that we do bind ourselves knowing that potentially we might not if, if we never promised we might fall apart but we're going to promise to never fall apart mm-hmm. we're going to promise to you know it's not that it's impossible to fall out of love with someone but you're promising that I will never love someone else mm-hmm. in the way I love you um, it's uh, uh, yeah it's just that I think it's I think it's the one of the greatest reflections on our capacity for love is that we're willing to bind ourselves to love. Mm-hmm. I think also if we... I think the some of the greatest joy in life... I think all of the greatest joy in life involves progression. You know, reaching a goal or working towards something. And I think marriage is committing to constantly progress. You know, I'll work towards making this better for the rest of my life. And I think that can bring you the greatest joy if that is your ultimate goal, is to, like, continue to grow with one single person. Right. It's a great goal. A lot of people are concerned 
when they're steady dating someone because they're like, it's such a big deal to get married. It's a very normal thing to think. Uh, I did a lot of pondering too, and I went through this logical analysis where I said, look, the only way I'd know the perfect person for me to marry is if I said, okay, three, you 3.6, 3.8 billion women, you can make a line outside my door, I'll have a clipboard, you can walk in, I'll ask you all the questions I need to ask you, we'll try everything out, and I'll give you a nice little rating, and then we'll move on to the next one. I'll just go through everybody, and at the end, I'll find out which one really works best for me, that I really feel like we have the most connection chemistry with, and then I'll marry that one and commit my life to them. Well, that's unreasonable. It's definitely not something that can happen. And it even can't really happen on a small scale. Uh, like, it, it, it's just not realistic. And so it turns out you have to make a faithful choice. A faithful choice being that I'm not sure that you're the best woman alive on earth for me right now, but I will move on anyways. And that gives you the constructive power to say, I am now, I've just flipped it. Oh my gosh. Turns out the characteristics of this woman don't determine how much love I can experience with her anymore. And that is so empowering, you know? So my, I talked to my grandparents about it uh, for a paper one time, and they said, you got to make sure that you have settled out the non-negotiables, right? Do you want to have kids? Um, is this a part of your life? There's some other big questions you can ask that you feel like you wouldn't negotiate on. And uh, there's probably less you won't negotiate on than you think. So it's very core, this type of conversation. But I think after you've gotten that out of the way, you've got to be with someone who you get married and then they get hit by a bus the next day. They never speak a word for the rest of their life and they're hooked up to a bed and a machine that beats their heart for them. That you'll sit in their hospital room as long as they're alive. That's the kind of person you should marry. Mm -hmm. Who would have nothing to offer you. No, No promise of any future. And you would still be completely in love with them. It's a love that transcends any type of transaction, you know? That's the kind of person you should love. Mm -hmm. You should love the very core part of them, you know? That's what I think. Mm -hmm. That's why, that's eventually how I came to the conclusion that, yeah, I'm ready to get married. And I'm not married yet, but I think it's a very good decision. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. Yeah. Do you have anything to add, Josh? I have a, maybe a concluding scripture if we're ready for Let's it. Let's all go around and give our concluding thoughts then. Okay, we'll start with first. Okay. Uh, we talked about love. I think love is the most profound thing in the universe. It is the most important sensation to me. Uh, as far as sensations go, there's nothing more than I'd like to feel than true love. And I think it does take hard work. I think there's a deliberate element and an incidental element. And I've been blessed with different incidental elements to be loved and to love. And I'm always happiest when I take advantage of those opportunities. And I love Madison very much for her characteristics, of course, but it's just a lot deeper than that. There's something I love about the very, very core of her as a person. And some of it has to do with the promises that we've made, you know? That's just, I know in my life, I'm going to love Madison forever. And she's so important to me. So, 
I'm sure everyone listening to this is capable of finding pure love. <laughs> and it can definitely happen to you. Don't be afraid of it. Just lean right into whatever love you've been blessed with already and try your best to capitalize on it. And you should always try to improve and be the best version of yourself. But true love will love you for who you are right now. I love that. <laughs> um, I agree. And also, well, I feel like love is the most complicated thing that we have. At least for me. Because it's so individual to everybody and it involves every single process of a person. Like, it involves your emotions, it involves your spirit, it involves your body. And... I think it's beautiful that for every single person on earth, they will define love differently because of their own experiences. And I think it's important to figure out what you feel like love is for you and um, and search and find out how you feel love and how you express love and how you feel like God shows you love and how you can show God love. And I think the more you understand about love in your own individual definition of love, the better you can love others. And I don't know how to conclude. I feel like there's no conclusion with this. (laughs) You just keep learning for the rest of your life. Um, To be continued. Yeah, to be continued. Sure. All right. I have a couple last thoughts. Um, first of all, I want to say, I, I think it's important to remember you cannot always choose to be loved um, in, in the interpersonal romantic sense because God always loves you, but you can't always choose to be loving. Mm-hmm. That is a choice. Second, um, I agree with Isaac that love is the most profound thing. It's the it's at the core of all existence. It's the height of human happiness is to experience the, 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 the truest form of love, which is what we call charity, which is God's type of love, which is, includes but is not restricted to romantic love. Romantic love is a subset of charity. It's a type of charity, but it's not all charity. Um, I, I just want to read a... Couple, just to conclude, a couple of verses from the Bible and from the Book of Mormon about love. Um, so these are from 1 John 2 and then from Moroni chapter 7. So John says, and interestingly, John, who is called the beloved disciple, is the one who writes the most about love. So I think that's kind of fun. Um, you know, he's called John the beloved, the one who Jesus loves. Um, so he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And then Moroni, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, if ye have not charity, ye are nothing, for charity never faileth. Wherefore cleave unto charity, which is the greatest of all, for all things must fail. But charity is the pure love of Christ, and it endureth forever. And whoso is found possessed of it at the last day, it shall be well with him. 
So I think love is the essence of all existence. It is the only thing that will remain. Everything else is kind of... Everything that is not related to or derived from love in some way is is a facade and will dissolve, but love will endure. Thanks for listening. That was the TMI Podcast. Take us how we are. We'll talk to you next time.